Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data with episode 434 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday. So you know exactly what that means. We will be spending today's show breaking down everything that happened this week across NXT and AEW. If you cannot tell, the Silver King has sort of lost his voice overnight, but we are nevertheless powering through on today's show to break down as much as we possibly can from NXT Spring Breakin' and both AEW Dynamite and Rampage across the last few days. Let's kick things off as we always do here at Getting Over with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. You can also leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And apparently Spotify introduced this new question and answer thing for podcast listeners where you can leave comments under each individual episode of the show. I just saw that for the first time right before taping this episode and approved a bunch of them going back weeks upon weeks. And we'll read some of those statements this upcoming Tuesday on our next WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So if you have any episodes that you particularly love, feel free to leave comments on those as well. We are not going to see those as frequently, and they're not rated reviews. So we're not going to read all of them here on the show. But as I come across them, maybe I'll check once a month. I'll be sure to read some of those here as well. Also, don't forget on this podcast, the Silver King happens to have a favorite number. I happen to love the number five. And all that means is you can become an official getting overhead by joining us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get news posts, bonus audio, interaction with us, and much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. It is a $5 membership. You can also just decide to buy us a beer again for five bucks over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. The link is also available in our Twitter bio at getting overcast and be sure to follow that account. Episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more once again on Twitter at getting overcast. As mentioned, the Silver King's voice is not going well today, so we're not going to do this long drawn out intro. We are going to kick things off with a reaction to NXT spring breaking from this past Tuesday. It was a television special after all. And then we're going to break down everything that happened this week in AEW. If you only follow one promotion or the other one brand or the other, hit our episode description. You can find timestamps so you can jump around. But as always, I do hope you listen to the entire show. Now, with NXT spring break and it opened with a fun video package featuring NXT superstars not really involved in the show, all partying at a barbecue, getting into hijinks and talking about the card itself. Typical stuff that they do every year. There were some umbrellas and tiki torches and stuff around the set as well. But now that they've changed the performance center like arena, the thematic elements to these TV specials and some of the premium live events as well aren't as drastic as they used to be. And I really wish they went back to that because it was always so fun to see the unique sets and all the little tchotchkes they had all over the place. Anyway, let's get to the card itself. We'll start with the main event, the NXT Women's Championship, Indy Hartwell defending against Roxanne Perez and Tiffany Stratton in the triple threat. Stratton walked out of a nice SUV saying she would claim her spot atop the women's division, she would hand Perez a loss, and she would end Hartwell's 50 minutes of fame. Roxy later cut a taped promo saying she would win the title back for all the girls who dream of making it to WWE and just want to be seen. 
Indy also cut a promo in a mirror holding her title, reassuring herself that the ladder match victory was a result of years of dedication, not pure luck like others suggest. And the match started hot with a lot of trio work. Unfortunately, all of it happened during picture-in-picture, picture, during a commercial break. They botched a double-assisted springing arm drag. Roxy then hit three bottom rope topes, two on Indy, with Tiffany's head bouncing off the announce table. Stratton broke a pinning combination with a double stomp on Hartwell. Then she had a flying swanton bomb outside into both women, which was probably the spot of the match. Unfortunately, Indy's leg got caught underneath her body, and she badly, it seemed, hurt her ankle in the moment. She left, and the crowd went completely silent, not at all paying attention to the match ongoing in front of them because Hartwell was legitimately hurt. So Perez tried a crossbody. They were calling this in the ring. She tried a crossbody. Stratton rolled through. Roxy then hit a great top rope hurricanrana and a Russian leg sweep. Indy then ran out limping on one leg. Stratton hit the prettiest moonsault ever on Perez, but Hartwell pulled her out of the ring by her legs and nailed Roxy with a forearm to the back of the head to get the win and retain the title. Unfortunately, this was a clunk fest. Roxy and Tiffany were asked to extend the match on the fly despite having a lack of experience, Tiffany in particular. And while there were a couple nice spots, the crowd just completely died. The air was literally sucked out of the entire arena once Indy got hurt and fans barely focused on the match itself after that. It's such an intimate venue that it's far tougher to overcome a situation like that in the Performance Center than in a huge arena with experienced, talented veterans that can kind of just get the crowd going again. I actually believe the best part of the match was the opening four minutes that, again, we didn't get to see full screen. Now, keeping the title on Indy was not only surprising, but baffling, as it really seemed a main roster call-up was imminent for her, and Stratton was really in the perfect position to become champion. Now, as far as calling an audible, when a title is on the line, you don't do that unless you have no other option. And the finish we got would have been strong in the regular course of the match. It was just a really unfortunate circumstance for Indy and really an unfortunate end to NXT Spring Break and as a whole. Braun Breaker fought Andre Chase. Duke Hudson, still carrying the MVP trophy, promised to have Chase's back as he sat concerned about facing Breaker, which got him pumped up. Breaker wore all black gear and had a tag meaner than evil on the back. His Titantron, though, was still the multicolored mess, so the aesthetic didn't change that much. Chase attacked at the bell. Breaker caught his foot on the Chase U stomps, moving into a lariat. Then he did a press power slam on Chase and finished with the Steiner recliner. It was a short match that put Braun over as a heel. He definitely wrestled more of a heel style, but I'd have liked to see him not release the submission immediately after the bell. Should lock that thing in, get heel heat, talk some trash. He was relatively expressionless the entire time. He needs to sell it better. And I, I know like every week I'm criticizing Braun Breaker. I want to be clear. I still think the guy has as high a ceiling as anyone in NXT, but it's just blatantly obvious all the ways in which he still needs to approve before he's ready for the main roster. So that moves us to the NXT championship, Carmelo Hayes against Grayson Waller. This ended up being the mid-show main event. Trick Williams was hysterically in board shorts and a bucket hat alongside Mello. Hayes had a seated vertical suplex, taking Waller off the apron. Waller threw a chair into the ring, then attacked Williams with another one at ringside. That sent Trick backstage for the duration of the match. Mello hit a springboard DDT with a ton of hang time in a really fantastic spot. Mello tried countering the rolling cutter with a code breaker, but he got caught midair, eating a leg lariat and then a fireman's carry style Liger bomb. 
Waller then caught Melo springing off the ropes with a rolling cutter in a spot that was executed so well, it didn't actually seem choreographed, even though it obviously was. Waller put Melo on the announce table and connected with a massive between-the-legs elbow drop. Then he rolled him inside for a false finish. Fans roused Melo, chanting his name as he countered another carry into a code breaker. Waller then botched another rolling move. He was selling an ankle, and I couldn't tell if he was seriously injured or explaining the botch where his foot kind of got caught on the middle rope, or bottom rope, I should say. He ate a kick to the head. I think it was a crescent kick. Melo immediately followed with nothing but net to retain the title in 11 minutes. Then after the bell, Melo grabbed the mic and called out Braun for a rematch at Battleground, saying even though Breaker didn't want it, he was about it. Breaker surprised out of the crowd with Williams sacrificing himself on a spear. Braun then pressed power slammed Melo and made Trick tap in the Steiner recliner, again, releasing it almost immediately as he tapped. Then he speared Melo through that fake wall underneath the crow's nest stage with Melo eventually getting carted out of the arena. All right, let's start with the match. The minor botch in the finishing sequence was super unfortunate because they were rolling otherwise. But 11 minutes did not feel like nearly enough time for this match, especially with a commercial break in the middle. I mean, they gave three minutes to a repetitive video package for that Kiana James storyline. It was really poor pacing for the show for this to get less than 15 minutes. And that match, the mixed tag team match, in totality, video package match itself, got 33% more time on this show than the signature number one match that they've been building that everyone wanted to see. The wrestling we got was fantastic. I went four stars and an A minus. It just wasn't long enough or smooth enough to go beyond that. And obviously, Melo was the right winner. Then you get to the post-match. And for me, it was frustrating. Going right back to Breaker, it just has the sense of foreboding, like they actually might flip the title back again and give it to him as a heel, which would be absolutely mind-numbing as a decision. I just don't know how they have Braun lose consecutive premium live event main events, but I do hope I'm wrong. Maybe there's going to be a stipulation added to this that will help it make sense, maybe aiding Melo in getting a win without the clean one, two, three. There just should be no scenario whatsoever where the title flips back to Braun. He's been champion for like two years at this point and changing him heel briefly before giving him the title back doesn't really do anything. The guy has to learn how to operate without a championship on his shoulder. And given Battleground is in Massachusetts, which is where Melo is from, perhaps it's going to be an even better crowning moment for him. Let's at least hope they're going in that direction. Last thing I'll say on this, we've been talking about it for weeks. Waller's getting called up to the main roster. He will be part of the WWE draft. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. D'Angelo family fought pretty deadly in a trunk match. Vic Joseph informed us before the bell that Henry Hill is Stack's uncle, which you must wonder whether that's like foreboding to the fact that he's going to rat on D'Angelo one day. There was also a 1947 Dodge he apparently borrowed from the family to use as the car with the trunk for the match. They used trash can lids for a while. The faces set up a table. The heels literally ran the table backstage just to piss off the fans. D'Angelo ran a wheelbarrow into Elton Preston's knee, then missed a crowbar shot on Kit Wilson, but slammed them both into a kiddie pool filled with plastic balls. Then Stax hit a senton with a boogie board, which was a ton of fun. That was a great spot. Deadly hit spilt milk on Stax outside and dragged him into the trunk, but he sprayed them with a fire extinguisher when they went to add D'Angelo. Tony smacked Prince in the head with a crowbar. Then they bombed Wilson through a table, stuffing them both in the trunk for the win. The family then drove Deadly out of the arena with Vic asking where the hell they're headed. Later, they were shown 
uh, having to stop the car to quiet down what was happening in the trunk. They kept heading down the road. And then NXT ended after the main event with the family at the dock, water splashing, as Stax suggested Deadly was deeper than Luca Brasi, as the babyface mobsters, who just offed a couple Brits, focused on the tag team titles. Now, compared to the match, which was extremely strong, the finish was extremely weak. But then again, a tag team trunk match or ambulance match, it is difficult to execute, as is, let alone with two people. The elements here were more about being fun than technical, and it was a perfect opener for a TV special. In terms of where Deadly are going, the main roster is where they're going to answer Vic. And if that wasn't clear by them going out on their backs, them getting thrown off a dock with concrete shoes should have been a blatant sign. This always made sense as their swan song in NXT, and it is going to be great to see them on SmackDown or Raw in the draft over the next week. Dijak literally booted Isla Dragunov in the face as he walked into the performance center with his luggage. Then he threw him into a bunch of ladders and berated him, asking if the pain made him feel alive. Dijak then slammed a garage door onto Isla's ribs, choking him and stopping him until getting pulled off by referees and trainers, including a surprise cameo from Oni Lorcan. Uh, This was a hot backstage attack, continued the build to their feud. It's great that they're finding stuff for Dijak to do outside of the title picture, really for both of them to do outside of the title picture. I just wish the Dijak gimmick was a bit more modern because the guy we got on Tuesday was a perfect character without any of that other kind of villainous Terminator bullshit that they also are using with him. I did see people questioning whether this was a way to write off Dragunov to the main roster, and I guess that's possible, but they've been building this feud for the last couple of weeks. So I think at a minimum, even if he was to get drafted, I think we get a match next week between these two, and I hope we get a match between these two. I don't know that I would call up Dragunov. I mean, he's amazing. He's ready for the main roster. Don't get me wrong. I just don't know that it's the right time. So my guess as of right now is he's staying in NXT, but we'll find out Friday and Monday. Lyra Valkyria fought Cora Jade. This was quite even offensively with Lyra getting a bunch on Cora. Jade grabbed her taped kendo sticks, but as the referee pulled them away from her, Lyra tried and missed a roundhouse kick. Cora took advantage by chopping out her knee and hitting a DDT for the win. This went from a nice match that was building to a bit of a disappointment. The finish was flat as hell. Neither of them benefited from it. Plus, it makes no sense that Cora has now been repackaged like 1.5 times, yet is still using a plain unnamed DDT as her finisher. This isn't 1984. Get this girl a move that matches her personality and skill set. What else are they doing over there? It's a performance center. It's developmental. Develop her. Give her some moves. Like It doesn't really make any sense. I saw a thread on Twitter this week, and I tweeted about it, that said people are believing that Cora Jade is the next Sasha Banks. I mean, what? (laughs) I'm not saying that she isn't good or can't be great. Maybe she will be great one day. But comparing her to Sasha Banks, there's No comparison there. Not in NXT, not in modern times. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all. So I wish her the best. I think she does have a future in WWE. She will be on the main roster probably in a year or so, I would expect. But I mean, let's not compare people to other people when it doesn't fit. I mean, if it's a direct comparison, fine. Okay, you can go ahead and do it. But trying to expect this woman to live up to the legacy of Sasha Banks in WWE, you are putting her behind the eight ball from the start. So I don't know where that came from. It sounded completely made up for whoever reported it. Um, But yeah, she's not Sasha Banks and she doesn't need to be Sasha Banks. She's Cora Jade. Josh Briggs and Fallon Henley fought Brooks Jensen and Kiana James. Jensen came out in an open white button down shirt with fresh red tights and white boots. 
James tagged in Jensen at one point and demanded he go after Henley, but Briggs intercepted before that could even happen. Briggs held back, going after Jensen as he collapsed. James distracted Briggs with Henley taking her out. Jensen then nailed Briggs with a spinning kick in probably the best move of his entire career to this point. Briggs then collapsed only to eat lariats to the back and front, with Jensen adding a rotating vertical suplex for a false finish. Jensen slammed Fallon's head into the apron and threw the purse to Jensen, who missed and bounced James off the ropes. Briggs caught him from behind with a much better lariat and got the win. James, after the bell, yelled at Jensen and tried to slap him. He caught her hand and she said, I never loved you. Then she grabbed her purse from him and stormed off. Briggs put his hand on Jensen's shoulder, then cradled his head, and that ended the segment. So we got months upon months of C and D level acting storylines and a women's tag team title reign that never should have happened at all to lead to this, a single mixed tag team match and an immediate relationship breakup after only one week of Jensen being a changed man fully under James's thumb. But I'm not sure if something happened here where they rushed to the end of the storyline or they dragged out the middle longer than they initially planned. But for me, this ended with a complete thud right back to where we started, barely any time spent on the interesting Jensen character change. You could have done that for two, three weeks, a month, done it at Battleground instead of shoving it on spring break in. I just didn't really get it. And look, despite my being bothered with the storyline from start to finish, the match was actually well-crafted. This was the best Jensen has looked in the ring. The faces rightly won. And the turn by James at the end was executed nicely. But like, what now? Do they just let this all go? Does Henley fight James one-on-one? Does James find another man or a tag team and continue this thing where they get into trio situation? It just feels like there was a ton of buildup over and over and over again for a relatively meh conclusion. And that's frustrating. And as I mentioned earlier, it was also frustrating that this match and storyline got a third more time on spring break than the men's world title match. A title match, by the way, that given the fact that Indy Hartwell was retaining the women's championship, the men's title match should have been the main event of the show. It was a far better match for getting about Indy's injury. So I didn't understand that. Maybe that's because they were trying to keep audience going against the NBA playoffs. That's possible. But that whole deal and the time and the pacing for these matches was very strange, at least to me. Dragon Lee backstage was asked about Noam Dar's US debut last week. Lee thought Dar was impressive, but he was really interested in the Heritage Cup and would keep his eye on both of them. That's something good for him to go after. It was a solid promo also. We got a moving graphic of Scripps crouched on a pedestal in the rain. Then he appeared on screen. He first used the voice modulator before we heard Reggie's voice saying he would go head-to-head with Axiom next week to end their feud once and for all. It was visually striking, but heavily repetitive. Gigi Dolan grabbed Vic Joseph's headset to cut a promo into the camera at JC Jane. She promised to make every day of JC's life living hell and said her little brother would even be sitting ringside to watch her cave JC's face in. Now, this feud is freaking hot. And after JC's great promo last week, Gigi just continued that momentum this week. I'm really excited to see them go after it in a much longer match. Drew Gulak and Charlie Dempsey backstage were confident that Gulak would overcome Wes Lee, saying he's overcompensating for something by defending the title so frequently, and they found plenty of holes in his game that they're going to exploit. Gulak cautioned it's a marathon, not a sprint. A bit later, Tyler Bate offered to be in Wes's corner for the match and even help him prepare 
Strong promo from both heels. Nice continued setup for this extended feud. Joe Gacy and Ava, without Dyad, approached Joe Coffey, wanting a fair title match for Dyad, given they were not pinned in last week's triple threat. Coffey was against it. Gacy offered to fight him one-on-one for the opportunity, saying if Gacy lost, Dyad would never challenge for the titles again as long as the Gallus guys hold them. Now, this comes on the back of one of the Dyad guys, I'm forgetting which now that I'm talking about it, tweeting publicly that they have requested their release and were denied this with six months left on their WWE contracts. I guess the report about them being willing to give Triple H and Shawn Michaels time was incorrect, or he just went off and did this to put pressure on. It's unfortunate that the Grizzled Young Veterans will be leaving, but as we've said, Dyad was easily one of the single worst gimmick changes of all time. Totally stupid and insulting. There was another NXT anonymous video of Sol Ruka being attacked in the Performance Center with Danny Palmer coming to her aid. It looked like it might have been Blair Davenport doing the attack. The anonymous account continues to be interesting, but they haven't paid it off at all. Maybe it's just a storytelling device and no payoff is ever going to come. Anyway, Ruka apparently has a torn ACL, which is terribly unfortunate given she was picking up so much steam in NXT and seemed to be right about to tag team with Palmer, which would have been great, especially if the KCs go to the main roster, they would have been able to fill in that baby face team spot in NXT. The rash of women's wrestlers with torn ACLs, a lot of them in NXT, but across multiple promotions, AEW included right now, it is absolutely wild. So best wishes to her on a speedy recovery, but it sucks that we're now probably nine months away from seeing her, uh, Sol Ruka, who was absolutely, like I said, picking up steam and seemed to be one of those women that was going to step into a major role coming out of the WWE draft. Oba Femi made his debut against Oro Mensa. Femi had a great entrance and looked like an absolute freaking monster. He sold really well for a neophyte big man. Mensa got plenty of offense, but got destroyed with a forearm to the collarbone. Femi then won with an awesome falling pop-up powerbomb. And I just don't need to see any more. One television match, and I really do believe I can make this call. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. Obafemi has it. And I'm very excited to see his progress in NXT. All in all, I would say Spring Breakin did not exactly live up to expectations. If the plan was for Indy to retain, I said this earlier, the men's title match and bronze post-match attack would have been a much hotter main event. Then you look at the pacing of the show, the extra segments, all of them that I just kind of read to you and broke down for you. That match, the men's match being 11 minutes, cut a couple of the segments, give them 13, 14. Just the uneven amount of time, Cora and Lyra had no business being on the show at all. That was a regular TV match. This had the elements to be a great TV special. It just never really got there for me. It certainly wasn't bad or anything, but again, it just didn't live up to my expectations overall. So with that, let's move to AEW. Quick overview here. I got to tell you, I was out of my mind bored watching Rampage this week. It was a Terrible, terrible episode. Dynamite, very mixed bag. This whole thing really leaves me wondering what is going to happen when AEW collision begins? Like, are they just going to turn Rampage into the equivalent of the old WWE superstars except late at night instead of early in the morning? Are they going to be able to book four hours of live television every week? I, I don't know. What we got on television here, and Dynamite was in Sunrise, Florida, the closest arena to me. I wanted to go. I didn't mostly because the NFL draft 
starting today, Thursday through Saturday. I have a lot of work responsibilities and, you know, spending a lot of time driving decently far from my home to go to a wrestling show. It just, it didn't really make sense. But after watching Dynamite, I was thrilled that I didn't go to this show. And I'm not saying everything that happened was bad by any means. I was just largely disappointed with a lot of the storytelling we got on Wednesday night. So let's get into all of it. On Dynamite, Darby Allen and Jungle Boy like sort of made amends for their verbal sparring last week with Darby saying they should at least respect each other and that he felt bad about being in the rafters and not having his back when he got screwed by MJF and Sammy Guevara last week. The suggestion was that Jungle Boy should get his back this week on Dynamite. Jack said good luck. Darby got aggressive, suggesting he'd beat him one-on-one. So it remained contentious in the end. It, it was to some degree better than the confrontation we got last week, but not really by much because at the end of it, you have Darby asking Jack for his help and then just verbally attacking him after the fact. Like it was really weird the way they executed that or tried to execute it. Later backstage, Sammy Guevara and MJF exchanged forehead kisses and laughed about getting the better of the other pillars and Tony Khan with their deal. Sammy promised to kick Darby's ass and gifted MJF a matching vest. MJF then gifted him a matching Burberry scarf. They hugged and kind of kissed each other on the cheek. This was straight up the best segment in AEW this week. I had written initially the best segment in the entire first hour. No, the best thing that we got across three hours of AEW television, it was absolutely hysterical. They are gold together. And the biggest issue with the entire thing is MJF can never really have a partner because he's such a piece of shit in kayfabe. But if these guys were a tag team, or actually linked up long-term, they would be immensely entertaining. So I love that backstage segment. Uh, we had the finals, if you want to call them that, of the Pillars Tournament, Darby against Sammy. This was the mid-show main event. Guevara countered a Tope Suicida with a cutter outside. Ty Mello then distracted Darby on the top rope, allowing Sammy to hit a Spanish fly. Guevara then killed Allen with a 6.30 sent on through a table at ringside. They demolished that freaking table. It was a great move, executed well, safely, Great stuff. Darby beat the count at nine, so MJF stored down to the ring. Darby hit a shotgun dropkick, but Tay distracted again as MJF threw Darby a skateboard, and Sammy played dead like Eddie Guerrero, and the referee, idiotically, of course, called the disqualification. MJF then laid out Darby and was ready to hit him with the dynamite diamond ring when Jungle Boy made the save. Darby yelled at Jack, presumably for not helping him early enough, as MJF bragged about all of his accomplishments. MJF then got some cheap heat before Tony Schiavone grabbed the mic, called MJF a prick, and explained that Sammy has earned his spot in the main event, but MJF and Sammy will fight Darby and Jack next week, where, if the faces win, they will join the match. MJF was incensed. He didn't let Sammy into his SUV later when he was leaving. Guevara obviously took that as an insult, and I guess that revokes the partnership that they developed over two weeks. And my takeaway here is, holy convoluted booking, Batman. Like, it was obvious they were headed in a direction like this last week with the cheating finish, but holy shit, there were so many better ways to get here. They had these guys fighting and winning singles matches to make themselves legitimate contenders, which was a positive direction, only to suddenly go away from it for a stupid gauntlet called a tournament when it's actually a gauntlet, only to then pull this out of their asses. Like, who does this benefit exactly? My interest level in this main event storyline it was already quite low just because they have not had good segments in the ring. But man, this did not help at all. I'm not trying to suggest it's awful. They tried something. 
but there were so many better options out there to get to the fatal four-way. Now, once we get to that match, double or nothing, it's going to be great. Four extremely talented wrestlers. They're going to put together some awesome spots. We'll praise the match. It'll be 4.25 stars or higher at the end of the day. Fine. But from a storytelling aspect, massively disappointing. On Rampage, John Moxley fought Christopher Daniels for some reason. CD escaped choke only to eat the hammer elbows, the bulldog choke, and a rear naked choke for the knockout loss. Then Mox shook his hand after the bell, this despite Blackpool Combat Club being pure heels now. That didn't make any sense. CD later was in a locker room saying he was there to win matches and titles, which also didn't make sense because he's been gone for the better part of two years. The rest of BCC showed up to attack him. Mox stopped them saying that CD was an OG. So Daniels credited him for having a little bit of honor left. And Mox just turned around, attacked him into a locker. Made even less sense coming out of the handshake earlier. So on Dynamite, Kenny Omega and Konosuke Takeshka fought the Butcher and the Blade. This was the main event of the show. Brian Danielson joined commentary. Takeshka had a blue thunderbomb and jumping knee into Omega's Snapdragon and a Tope Kon Hero on Blade. Then Takeshka basically hit a V-trigger on Butcher for the 1-2-3. Danielson called Takeshka a professional wrestler and a prodigy, while Omega was an amateur whose best days are behind him. He flubbed the line, but said Takeshka should be training with BCC. So the heels attacked Omega from behind. They were ready to use the screwdriver on him until the Young Bucks made the save. Omega then hit Mox with a Snapdragon. Then he ate Stario super kicks. Omega took the screwdriver, but Danielson threw Takeshka into the ring to stop Omega. BCC then attacked the Bucks. Mox shoved Takeshka, and he hit Death Rider on Omega. BCC raised Takeshka's hands like to celebrate with him, but he shook them off. So Wheeler Yuta low-blowed him, and Mox stabbed him repeatedly with the screwdriver as Dynamite ended in relative silence. And when I say relative silence, I'm talking about coming from the crowd. Omega and Takeshka were fun working together. The post-match angle with Brian using and abusing Konosuke definitely made sense. But there was just no heat for this attack. It all simply lacked energy and excitement. It was long and drawn out. Hardly the worst thing on the show, but not something overly notable either from an attack standpoint. However, there is an additional element that we can consider here. And that is, if you remember, Wheeler Yuta had to get his ass kicked and had to bleed to get into the BCC. Well, what happened here? Takeshka got his ass kicked and was forced to bleed to get into the BCC. I think we also saw Claudio bleed and maybe even Brian Danielson did in the Mox match. They both did. So there's something there to this. We also have the shadiness of Don Callis. It is not impossible that both of them, or at least Takeshka, winds up joining BCC as they build to this blood and guts match, which almost assuredly is coming, against the elite in whatever form the elite are going to take. So keep your eye on that going forward. On Dynamite, the international championship was on the line, Orange Cassidy against Bandito. Orange did a half-ass gimmicks like 12 minutes into the match. Then he hit the weakest turnbuckle head slams I've ever seen. Bandito hit a great pop-up cutter and a frog splash before escaping the mousetrap. Orange countered a pop-up cutter with a orange punch, hitting Beach Break for the win. The finishing sequence was the best part of the match. It just never felt, at least to me, like it hit a third gear, but it was hard fought and there was plenty of fun stuff from both guys, 3.5 stars and a B. And there was also a really funny bit that followed backstage where like Orange put his glasses on Bandito in the ring. And then they ended up backstage walking up to Renee Paquette. They both kind of clowned around with her and seemed to form this like bond that would later play itself out. On Dynamite, Adam Cole backstage promised to call out Chris Jericho or find him. He later hit the ring and did exactly that. 
angry, not over him being attacked, but Britt Baker being attacked last week. Jericho appeared on the big screen calling Cole a coward for letting Baker get beaten down. The rest of JS attacked. Orange and Bandito tried to save, but were outnumbered four to three. Then Roderick Strong made his AEW debut to a nice pop. He cleared the ring with brief Roddy and undisputed chance before Cole hugged him to end the segment. Now, this segment was awful. I said some other ones weren't, even though I criticized them. This one was. But Strong's debut was pretty solid. Interesting signing. If they have a specific plan for him with Cole and maybe Kyle O'Reilly, they're making them undisputed something else. It could work. I'm just not sure what he really adds that AEW doesn't already have. Baker backstage had a black eye while Jamie Hayter had her arm in a sling. They said the feud with the outcast is far from over and the only way it will end is if they get sent to the morgue. Now, it sounds like this might be a blood and guts match. We know that Jamie Hayter and Sarai is probably going to be a title match at double or nothing. The promo was really bad from Hayter. She has done far, far better before. And that was really strange because it was clearly taped. On Dynamite, the TBS title was on the line. Jade Cargill against Taya Valkyrie. On Rampage, Mark Sterling announced that a stipulation of the title match was Taya couldn't use the jaded style finisher. So Taya hit half a blue thunderbomb. Jade took her off the top with a superplex and hit a Canadian destroyer. Taya escaped jaded, then stopped in the middle of trying her own finisher, Road to Valhalla, which is the same thing, remembering she couldn't use it. So then she just stood there, jumped over Jade, and that was a pinning combination for the win and title retention in under eight minutes. Taya kind of snapped after the bell and nearly attacked the referee. So let's just kind of realize everything that went on here. This was Jade's first title defense against like a legitimate opponent since February when she fought Red Velvet. And I don't even know if you can consider Red Velvet a legitimate opponent. Really, it's her first one against someone who you could believe might actually beat her, had a 5% chance of beating her since November when she fought Nia Rose at Full Gear. Nyla Rose, excuse me. There is no indication of improvement with Jade. The Destroyer is on the person taking it. So that was all Taya. The finish made some sense within the confines of the rule, but it was really clunky. It was pathetic. And you would think the babyface who stupidly signed a contract going into a match where they can't use their finisher would realize, since I can't use my finisher, I need to try to do this, this, or that. I mean, she looked pathetic losing this match. There have been worse match finishes in the history of wrestling and even in the most recent history of wrestling. But this was among them. It was really damn stupid. Chris Statlander cannot return soon enough so this title reign can finally end. On Dynamite, the TNT Championship was also on the line. Wardlow against the jobber. Wardlow wore sparkly black singlet. He hit a headbutt at the bell, plus his lariat and four power bombs in a squash victory. Arn Anderson then cut a promo with his back to the hard cam for 33% of the time. He put over Wardlow saying he might have to get dirty sometimes in fights. The promo dragged like hell. Then Christian Cage and Luchasaurus interrupted, walking all the way down to the ring, but not getting inside. This was like the opposite of a positive follow-up coming out of the TNT title win. This feels exactly like his last TNT title win. Arn's promo was awful. Wardlow beat a nobody, and we didn't even get Christian on the mic to set up a match and try to save this entire thing. Block at zero! On Rampage, FTR, Jeff Jarrett, and Jay Lethal 
fought Ari Davari's crew. Sterling got in the ring with Dax Harwood holding him, Sterling ducking, and Jarrett hitting Harwood. Jarrett then hit Tony Nese with the stroke for the win. As the faces and heels argued, Mark Briscoe separated them, and Satnam Singh continued holding the fakest-looking Golden Globe ever. This was awful on Rampage. Now, on Dynamite, we had Harwood against Jarrett one-on-one. Dax hit a pile driver. Jarrett hit a catapult. Dax countered a figure four into a cradle. Sanjay Dutt, who got ejected from ringside earlier in the match, tripped Dax and held his leg during a pinning combination, though he still was able to kick out. Dax then chased uh, him around the ring, Sanjay, with Jarrett catching him running back inside with the stroke for the victory. Now, this was a damn fine, classic, old-school wrestling match. It felt like something Dax probably told Tony Khan, hey, I want to fight Jeff Jarrett. Let me do it on TV. So he said, okay, fine, you can fight Jeff Jarrett. I even liked the classic heel finish. But holy shit, giving Jarrett and Lethal another tag team title opportunity, this time against FTR, when, let me repeat, you have an incredible tag team division at your disposal. It is absolutely absurd. Speaking of Tony, he had an important announcement. The Owen Hart Cup opening ceremonies will begin on May 28th at Double or Nothing in Las Vegas. He said the tournament will be held in Canada with some matches at Forbidden Door and the finals in Calgary on July 15th. That, of course, is very cool. This was the best that Tony has ever looked, spoke, and come across on TV. He had a nice suit. He gelled his hair. He wasn't staring daggers into us. It was still an incredibly awkward announcement because Tony's kind of an awkward dude. And personally, as much as I loved Owen Hart, this announcement, this tournament, it really does nothing for me. But we do need to give extra credit to whomever with AEW, whatever third-party person they hired to make Tony presentable and appealing on television. Because like I said, this was by far the best he's ever looked, sounded, and spoke on television. On Rampage, there was a triple-A mega championship match, Alijo del Vikingo against Dralistico. You may be asking, Silver King, why did this match not only happen in AEW, but main event to show? You can ask me that 10,000 times, going, I'm never going to have an answer for you. Vikingo hit a diving Canadian destroyer on the apron and a coup de gras inside. Dralistico took him off the middle rope with a hurricanrana outside. There were some blatantly piped in chants during this match. While arguing with the referee, Dralistico ate a back heel kick, running Meteora, and 6.30 sent on with Vikingo retaining the title. Rusha's crew attacked immediately after the bell, with Preston Vance laying Vikingo out. The crowd was basically silent at this point. It immediately killed the finish. No one saved him. It was a fun match, but really nothing to chew on here. On Rampage, the Hardys, Isaiah Cassidy and Hook hit the ring. Jeff Hardy got welcome back chants, saying he's trying to love himself again, and the smartest move is to retire from screwing up. He said he wanted to retire in AEW and end his career on a high note. Yeah, let's all laugh about the DUI. Uh, The Firm then attacked from behind with Cassidy eating Ego's Edge before the Hardys saved him with chairs. This is certainly something that happened on television this week. On Rampage, Keith Lee with Dustin Rhodes cut a backstage promo saying he earned some respect for Chris Jericho, but would have beaten him if it was not for Swerve Strickland's interference. They're teaming next week on Rampage against undisclosed opponents. How the fuck have they gone back to Keith Lee and Dustin Rhodes as a team for no reason whatsoever? There wasn't an attack. There's not a feud, nothing. Like, is this shit for real? Zero point zero. 
On Dynamite, Powerhouse Hobbs interrupted QTV and put QT Marshall against the wall. QT promised to make him a champion again, and Hobbs demanded that he fix it. I can't believe QTV still exists. I can't believe they didn't separate Hobbs from it after the title loss. I can't believe it. On Rampage, Kiara Hogan fought Julia Hart. Julia won with her heartless submission. The match was short and awful. Anna JAS, another heel, ran down to attack Hart after the bell until they were separated. So we're going to get a rematch here against heel versus heel that no one particularly wants, I guess. Okay? Look, this is that was the end. That's the last thing I had to say from Dynamite and Rampage. I don't know how they are going to do two additional live hours of TV each week when this is what they're putting on the three hours of TV, one of them taped, that they currently have. It was a really weak pair of episodes, Rampage and Dynamite. One thing I can say for sure, and I mentioned this earlier, I made a fantastic decision not to go to Dynamite this week. I hope everyone who did, of course, have fun. And I do hope they come back because I would love to see a Dynamite in person here in South Florida. But given this show, what happened on it, the way that big main event match that ended up being a mid-show main event transpired, the booking of it, it was just a show that I, I was glad I missed. That's really the best way I can put it. And I'm also really curious to see what AEW is going to do, what Tony Khan is going to do with their upcoming booking, because they have double or nothing. Then they're going to do Forbidden Door, which is always difficult to book on television. Then they simultaneously are going to have to book all in for Wembley Stadium and all out one week later in Chicago. So when you have all of that, plus television, plus Ring of Honor, all for Tony Khan to book, I just don't know how they're going to do all of it. I wish them the best of luck, and I'm very curious to see how it all transpires. Folks, that is it for this Thursday edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, talking all things NXT and AEW. We will be back with the exact same show, same bat time, same bat channel, one week from now, between now and then on Tuesday. We're going to have a supersized WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Not only will it be your WWE Backlash Ultimate Preview, not only will it be a full recap of the WWE draft that is preceding Backlash, but if time allows on that show, you will also have my latest one-on-one interview with the leader of Legado del Fantasma and one of the key cogs in the LWO Santos Escobar joins the show for the second time, the first time since 2021. If that show happens to go a bit long, we will cut that as a separate episode. But the plan as of right now is to put all of that together in a jam-packed, supersized edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast this coming Tuesday. And of course, next Saturday, we will have your Getting Over Instant Analysis edition of WWE Backlash. In other words, there is every reason in the world for you to subscribe to this podcast. Beyond that, you can follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more. You can also remember that we happen to love a certain number here at Getting Over. I happen to love the number five. You can become an official Getting Overhead at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over exclusive news posts, bonus audio, and much more all over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and please don't forget what this podcast is all about it's all about 
Defy. Leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts as well, because if you do, we will read them live right here on the show. Thank you all so much for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. The Silver King is now going to rest his voice, take a couple of days off, return to you on Tuesday. At this point, though, it is time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.